So, where have you uh, buried your treasure? This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. So, my wife and I are talking the other day, and we're looking at how the prices of real estate keep going up, the demand keeps going up. We know of people that have put their home on the market and they sell in days. Where we spend a lot of time in Sky Valley, Georgia, we have an extremely small and modest investment in a little mountain home. Uh, It's where we do this radio program. We spend a good amount of time there right now for a number of reasons, though we primarily spend a lot of our time in Florida as well. But in launching the radio program, the peace and quiet has been helpful up here. But we've noticed something. In just a few years, we have had this little place. And we bought it for literally next to nothing and put money into it and a lot of time, a lot of labor as an investment. And so far, if the economy were to hold, which I doubt that it can, the return on this investment has been huge, though we're not reaping it or cashing it out now. Not for a while anyway. I kind of prefer keeping the place because I couldn't afford to buy a place like this now by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm seeing places that I wouldn't have given you anything for five years ago, maybe six years ago, suddenly worth incredible amounts of money, unbelievable amounts. That's called wise investing, so they tell us, but is it really wise investing? And that's why I want to remind you of what Jesus says, and it comes out of Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust dust corrupt, and where thieves break in through and steal. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Now, let's give you a little quick background. Back in the time that Jesus spoke those words, a piece of cloth was a valuable possession. Very valuable. Cloth was hard to come by. There was no Walmart. There was no Joanne's Fabric. You, It was pretty difficult stuff to come by. That's why when you think about when Jesus was crucified, this beautiful garment that he had, this one solid piece of cloth, they cast lots. They were not about to tear it up because something of that nature was very hard to find and very valuable. So to those hearing those words, we didn't have investments like we do today. There were no banks as we know them today. It was a different world, but it all made sense to them. So where do you put your treasure? In the bank? And if so, what are you getting in return for your investment? Are you putting it in a car? Well, most of those depreciate, and they'll rust out eventually in time. So a lot of folks have been putting their money in things like silver, gold, and real estate. Now, this program today, trust me, I'm not talking about any of that like, oh, invest in that. This is not the purpose. I just want you to be aware of the economic circumstances in which we truly live. 
a lot of people are deceived. They, you know, our, our memories, unfortunately, in this country are extremely short. It was only what? How many years ago? Remember 2008? A lot of people forget. A lot of people have long forgotten 2008. I haven't. I'm old enough to remember it quite well. In 2008, I was 54 years old, and I watched, I watched the economic bubble burst, and we had kind of a reset during that period of time. The value of real estate plummeted. Let me give you an example. In 1999, a matter of fact, it was literally May of 1999. We closed, I think, sometime around this time of the year in June, my wife and I purchased a house in a town in Florida. And understand the economics of 1999 versus today, 23 years later, that house was a lot of money. I mean, a real lot of money for us. We had lived in a small town called Tocoa, Georgia, And we watched the house there that we had owned for years go up in value. But this house, which was smaller, was going to cost us a little bit more than the house we had in Georgia. And so we really had to debate, can we afford to spend 80-some-odd thousand dollars on a house? Especially going into ministry and potentially seeing an income reduction on my part. But it was the best deal we could find, and the owner of the house made it very possible. He decided, about the time we were looking for a mortgage, to give us four years, four years to replace the mortgage. He would actually be the mortgage holder. We were actually able to do it in less, but we were able to close, and he was, quote, the bank. It didn't take long for that house to start going up in value as the real estate market was pretty warm at that time. And by the year 2000, 2001, even in spite of the events of September 11th, the recuperation in in, in 2002, 2003, 2004, and 2005 was huge. When my first wife passed away in 2004, I sold the house in 2005 because I'd left the area. And I sold it for $250,000. Now, that's not a bad return in less than six years. And the person that bought that house tried to sell it for $325,000 less than a year later with a few renovations and improvements. And then the entire economy just collapsed in 2008. In 2009, you couldn't get a mortgage You had to have the money in the bank to borrow against yourself. It was pretty bad. And the value of that real estate went down, down, down. It got to the point that in 2010, early 2010, this house that I had sold for $250,000 that somebody had on the market for $327,000, I could buy it back for $89,500, exactly what I had paid for it in 1998. Now the house is back in the 200s again. And so these numbers will go up and down, but what are they really worth? 
And this is part of the problem, inflation, and, and it's the hidden inflation we don't think about. And this is what I want to talk about on this segment of the program today. I want to give you some understanding. It'll help you in the rest of the programs we'll do this week and in the future. I want to set a stage here. Where are you investing? They say if you don't save for the future, you will starve, and that's a truth that many have learned over the years. It's an old principle. Go back to the Old Testament. Remember? Remember what happened many, many years before. You remember when one of the brothers was sold into slavery into Egypt? He's the one that interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh kept having this dream of seven fat cows being, or calves being eaten by seven emaciated, starving calves. What did that mean? And none of Pharaoh's people could ever understand it. And so they called Joseph. You know, the Hebrew slave, because they had heard he could interpret dreams. And he said, oh, it's pretty simple. As the Lord lays this on his heart, you're going to have seven very good years. I mean, really, really good years. Followed by seven really bad years of famine. So you need to prepare during these seven years. And during the very prosperous years, put enough aside to get across the seven bad years. And that's what they did. That's exactly what they did. There's the lesson learned. They saved. They prepared for the future. Long before we had things like money and credit cards, all this kind of stuff, and what we call just-in-time inventory management, which can be a real problem when you have cyber attacks on your supply of gasoline or your food, We're not saving. We're not preparing for a bad day. We're not putting food stock aside in case something goes wrong. We are dependent upon what is called the just-in-time inventory management system. And it's going to be one of the things we're going to have a real serious issue with, I believe, in the years that are coming forth very soon. Right now... The last I checked, the United States, just the United States, we have $28 trillion with a T dollars of debt. $28 trillion. And we have no savings of any kind. We don't have gold reserves. We don't have cash anywhere. We have nothing. In essence, we've already spent the taxes we'll get in the future. We've spent the taxes of our children, our grandchildren, and now even our great-grandchildren. We've already spent it. But the American leaders keep saying everything is fine. Not a problem in the world. Let's rearrange the deck chairs here on the Titanic. It's going to be just fine. Our leaders in the United States, and this is true, I don't care if you're in Canada, in Ottawa, Australia, England, any of the Western world. They love this economy. They really believe in this weird economic theory of just keep spending the future 
and there's never a day of reckoning. Because see, notice that I'm thinking back into the 1990s. I was looking ahead in the 1990s with my, my late wife and thinking, you know, we need to, if we could, and we just couldn't at that time because of health reasons and everything else, wouldn't it be nice if we could take some of the assets we have and put them into something that would pay a decent interest? And over the years, when we get to our retirement years, we would have this income from all these assets. Didn't exactly work out that way. Nowadays, go try to invest money in a bank. You remember the days when a passbook savings account was 5% interest? Just a simple passbook savings account. How about a higher aggressive account? You were looking, I can remember back in the 80s and 90s, looking at numbers like, you know, 7, 8, and 9% on investments. Of course, mortgages were 10, 11, and 12. A lot of other loans were high. But there was an incentive to save that at least at that time, at least at that time, stayed just ahead of inflation. You still came out a little ahead. In other words, your money at that time didn't really go down in value too much. There's a theory out there that all these debts and deficits are good because their main effect is to continue to stimulate the economy. And there's a theory that you never have to pay it back. You can create all these dollars out of thin air using nothing but your computer and a mouse. This is the modern monetary theory. And the idea is we can push all of our economic woes, problems, and grief somewhere into the future long after we're dead and gone. You can just borrow money and spend it without ever having to pay it back. Isn't that a wonderful idea? You can just keep printing money out of thin air. But what people don't understand, and this is the disconnect of our terrible education system here in the United States, a total and absolute disconnect from reality. We have kids that don't understand the basics of economics, the basics of how an economy works. They just believe that they're entitled to something their iPhone, their money, uh, a free education, all that goes with it. This has been systematically ingrained and pushed into the minds of young people through our morally, intellectually, spiritually, and any otherwise you can think of it, bankrupt public education system. They don't understand that one out of every $5 that's being spent today came into being in the last, oh, I don't know, less than a year. And we just keep printing more. Go back to all the draconian lockdowns, which will probably come back. We had this economic fallout. People couldn't go to work. So what do we do? We just throw money at them. The money supply, which includes our cash, our checking accounts, and other easily spent money has ballooned by 27%. Think of the number of government bonds that are floating out there and mortgages. One of the problems with all this spending that we did last year and this 
unbelievable amount of spending we're going to do this year. It takes the money we currently have. Now, remember, my wife and I are, we are basically retired. I am not paid an income to do this radio program, just so you know. Anything that comes in is invested into airtime. Just so you understand. I do this because God has laid it on my heart to do it. Our modern economic principle is almost like what kids are facing today when they don't really have any consequences for their actions in life. We have kids that, you know, do the least they can do. I mean, that's always been an instinct for all of us. I get it. But I see continually the minimal being done and sloughing off real work. There was a time when a kid worked at McDonald's, let's say around 1975 or 1980, where you came to work, cleaned up, your clothes looking decent, your uniform looking crisp and clean, and you did your job. You couldn't be sloppy. Or you get fired. There's always somebody else that wanted your job. Nowadays, nobody wants to work. They're desperate to get anybody, so the pickles can be off to the side, onions slathered everywhere. It comes like a mess because nobody cares anymore. Why do I care? It's not my sandwich. And I'm entitled, and I'm not getting paid enough anyway. We have a lot of things to be worried about when you have $23 trillion with the T dollars in debt, and they want to add another $2 trillion for, for more coronavirus aid, another $2.5 trillion roughly for an Appropriations Act, another almost $2 trillion for another rescue plan, and you know, another $6.4 trillion. Where, where, where's the money going to come from? Just borrowed pushing and kicking the can down the road. Now, we we talk around, I I remember there was a senator in South Carolina, good old Ernest Hollings, way back when. And this has got to be sometime in the 1970s. He had this statement, you know, a million here and a million there, before you know you got a billion, and that's some real money. Now we talk about billions like it's pocket change, and we get a little concerned when we talk about multiplied trillions with a T. To give you an idea of what a trillion dollars is historically, it took, are you ready for this? From the beginning of our nation in the 1700s, we'll use 1787 as kind of the starting point, not 1776. We're going to go a little farther down the road. It took us. From that time, we defeated the British twice, including the War of 1812. We purchased Alaska, the Louisiana Purchase. We defeated fascism, ended the Great Depression, fought a world war on two fronts, built the entire interstate highway system. Well, we've added on to it, I know, but the basic internet, most of it was built and put a man on the moon. That was the first trillion dollars of American history from the 1780s to the night till like 1970. Think about that. 
That was almost 190 years, roughly speaking, to spend and print the first trillion with a T dollars. And now we want to spend 6.4, six times that amount in the next year. We had a shutdown economy. Unemployment was high and now it's gone down. Yet we keep printing more money. And here's what happens. And what people, this is what your typical student coming out of a high school or most American universities and colleges simply cannot comprehend. Every time money is put into circulation, it is purely debt. And the more money you toss in, the lower the value of the remaining money that's running around in circulation. In other words, if you're on a fixed income, you watch prices go up. My wife and I today, we were looking over our family budget and noticing that certain things have been going up consistently. Not just the price of real estate in around the country, but the price of groceries is going up. The price of gasoline has gone up. Yeah, when you stop being a supplier and you become a consumer only, and you're dependent upon other nations, when you, when you devalue your currency by adding on more debt, we have big-time inflation on its way, especially in this large amount of additional debt we're going to throw out there in a hurry. It's not going to be a slow rise. It's going to be a quicker rise than we're used to seeing. A lot of people will say, you know, some of that inflation kind of looks good for a moment because, hey, wages are rising and people feel like they have more money. Hey, we're going to get $10 an hour or 15 or whatever. But then the reality sets in. The basic laws of economics can't be deceived. They're going to come back and bite you. I've got a son-in-law that sells lumber for a living. He works for a company I'm not going to mention, but he deals with many uh, home improvement type stores. He deals with a lot of lumber yards that are privately owned, even some large hardware stores. Have you looked at the cost of a two-by-four or just a piece of plywood? Yeah, you folks in Florida, like me, that run out and buy plywood when you hear about a tropical storm coming. I can remember when we were renovating our little house in Georgia. Because we bought it, it was virtually uninhabitable. And we bought a lot of two-by-fours, and they were a dollar-something apiece. So, you know, buying a few hundred two-by-fours was not like thousands of dollars. We had to buy a lot of plywood to repair the roof. That stuff is $65 a sheet. Two-by-fours are like $7. There has been a surge in price of 200% over last year. We have supply and demand issues caused by the government lockdowns and now a demand because people took their government handouts to remodel their their homes. Gasoline. We live in an area where the gasoline prices are not too bad. Around $3 a gallon. Some places are worse and it'll probably go up as we get further into the summer. Things like corn 
Good old corn up, what, 67%? You know, a lot of that high fructose corn syrup is in a lot of things, like your Mountain Dews and beverages. They're going to go up. Wheat is up. Milk is up. This is not just an American problem. This is a worldwide problem. It's taking more dollars today than last year, but our incomes and the number of dollars we're getting each month and each week are go- are not increasing. Things like silver, it's gone up. Oil's gone up. Concrete's even more. Silver, copper, all of it up. There's a difference, though. I talked about 2008. In 2008, the money was created through what they called quantitative easing. It was injected into the banking system. It caused some inflation in financial sectors like the stock market and the housing market, but it did keep the banks from collapsing. This time, we're just throwing the money out there at everybody and everything. In other words, massive money Printing never did fix the fundamental problems of 2008. They're still there. we still got the same problems. Two years at the rate we're going, two years from now, look at being $40 trillion with a T dollars in debt. And at the rate we're going, it won't take long to hit $50 trillion. If you're spending $6 trillion, $7 trillion to stimulate the economy... When is the economy ever going to recover? And what are you going to do when you finally get into a recession? Politicians need to pick up their Bible and read the book of Genesis, chapter 41, to get an understanding of how Joseph was used by God to tell the politicians of their day, you must be ready for the lean years. It only is going to take a country like Iran with an EMP over a sector of our country to throw us into a depression or worse. It took our national debt 200 years to get to the first trillion dollars. 200 years. And that's not from the very beginning. We, we didn't have any debt for a long time. It took basically, basically it took 26 more years to get to 10 trillion and now we're at 27 trillion in 12 years. We're going to be at 40 and 50 in just a few more. Our national debt is greater than the sum of all goods and services that Americans can produce in a year. And we'll outpace it at the rate we're going. America's leaders, if you look at the book of Genesis, Joseph said to be prepared for the seven lean years. Are you prepared? I'll probably talk more about this tomorrow, maybe Friday. I got something I want to share in the next half hour. The storehouse is going to be empty. At least Pharaoh took Joseph's advice. Apparently, the Joe in the White House we have now won't heed the lesson. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. We're going to have to change our ways. 
or we're not going to survive. We'll talk maybe about the pandemic and all the other stuff a little bit tomorrow. But I wanted to put that out there. We always talk about being prepared, being ready for a very different time in our world. And truly, it is a different time than we than any of us have ever anticipated. Do you believe in the ministry of Truth to Ponder? Let me know. Consider a small gift to keep us on the air. Our mailing address is 21 Berkshire, B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E, 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263, our secure box in Sky Valley, two words, Sky Valley, Georgia, 30537. Once again, 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263, Sky Valley, Georgia, 30537. This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. The House of Tamahana's Father. Shalom Aleichem. This is the nice Jewish boy, Jonathan Kahn, your Jewish connection, bringing you the riches of your Jewish roots in Jesus. Now get your pen out as fast as you can so you don't miss out on receiving a special free gift you're going to get and love in a moment. Now, New Zealand tribal chief, a guy named Tamahana, he was known for the deep spirituality of his heart and his continual delighting in God's word. Once he visited England and he was taken one day to a luxurious mansion near London. And the man who led him through expected the chief to be amazed and overwhelmed at it all. But surprisingly, the chief didn't seem to be excited at all. So the man began pointing out how beautiful the furniture was and it was brought from all parts of the world and the view from the window, the grandeur. Tamahana listened to it and didn't say a word. Then he looked up to the walls and he said, ah, my father's house is better than this. His father's house, thought the English gentleman, who knew that his father's house was a poor mud hut. But Chief Tamahana went on. He said, my father's house is better than this. And then in his native tongue, he began to rave about the house of his father in heaven. So here's this guy who lived in a mud hut. And yet he had no envy when he walked through this English mansion. And you see, he knew who his father was. And when you know who your father is, then you know who you are. See, a child of the king doesn't have to be envious. And when you know who you are, then you're okay. Wherever you are, whether you're in a mud hut or whether you're in a mansion, whether you're in good times or bad times, you don't envy, you don't want. How could you? You're a child of the king. So rejoice, my friend, if you're born again. Rejoice in your father and rejoice that you're his kid. And even if you're in a mud hut right now, with your eyes on God, your mud hut will become as the greatest mansion. Now, the free gift for you. From the sands of Judea to the wings of the cherubim to the writings of the rabbis that prove Jesus is Messiah, the awesome mystery now revealed the mystery of the temple doors. You'll love it. And Sapphire is guaranteed to bless your socks off. How do you get all these free gifts? Easy. Just remember Jesus' real Hebrew name, Yeshua, and dial it. That's it. Just dial 1-800-YESHUA-1. You'll be so blessed, but call now. 1-800-YESHUA-1. Now, I invite you to minister with me together bringing salvation to God's chosen people, Israel, and to the unreached peoples of all nations of five continents with over a billion people. Just call now, 1-800-YESHUA-1. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A-1. Or you can write me direct. I'd love to hear from you. Just write to the Nice Jewish Boy, Box 1111, Lodi, L-O-D-I, New Jersey, 07644. It's the Nice Jewish Boy. It's Box 1111. It's in Lodi, L-O-D-I, New Jersey. And the zip is 076. 44. Well, till next time, this is Jonathan Khan saying Shalom Alechem. Peace be to you, my friend, in Messiah Ben Elohim, the Son of God.
This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. And welcome back to part two of our Truth to Ponder program for this Wednesday. I'm your host, Bob Bierman. Very quickly, Truth to Ponder Radio is now on. It is on Galaxy 19. You can hear it now on Galaxy 19. We'll tell you more about it as we get into the weekend and into next week. Still some updates and things that need to be done. I want to change gears right now. We talked in the first segment about our monetary investment and the things in this earth. And we live here. We're not of this earth. We just happen to be passing through. And so we need to be good stewards of those things that we have. But a lot of people that claim the name of Christ really don't have any investment in Christ Jesus at all. I call them cultural Christians. They were born into some family. They may have been baptized and confirmed, married, and attended a wedding or a funeral or two. Hey, you might see them on Easter, an occasional Christmas service. But they have no investment, none, into the things of God. And sadly, that is the state of the vast majority of people in the United States. More than half of the people in this country have no affiliation with any kind of religion. And those that claim the name of Jesus Christ, sadly, a number of them, based on what they say, are really not believers. They're, as I said, cultural Christians. There's a day of reckoning coming both economically for our nation and spiritually for our nation. There's going to be a price to pay. There is no such thing as the free lunch. You can't keep printing more money. The Bible says you reap what you sow. And the things that we have been sowing of late in this nation will demand God's judgment in a short amount of time. About about three years ago, I preached a sermon in St. Augustine, Florida that talks about that. And I want to share the message I delivered to that congregation oh, back in 2018. Listen carefully to what I had to say and see if any of this applies to you today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share from your word what you would have us understand and comprehend today. I pray that you'll open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive. For this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have gone to a wedding? A wedding of somebody that doesn't normally go to church on a regular basis, if at all, but somehow the wedding is being done by some kind of a clergyman, maybe at a beach, maybe at a ballroom, maybe in a chapel, and they always have their favorite Bible passage to read before they get deeply into the service. How many of you have been to those kind of weddings? It's kind of like the baptism to make the grandparents happy. You know, their kids never go to church. They have no intention of going to church. They're not going to ever ask their child to go to church. They're not going to take them to church. But to stay in the will, we'll get the kid baptized. 
at the church. I recently saw that happen a couple of weeks ago. Big party, all these people at a church. But they won't be back. And I'm thinking of the mockery they'll make of the baptismal vow. The sponsors, yes, I'll make sure that they're raised in the, you know, in the truth of God's word. No, they're not. You're just doing this to make grandma and grandpa happy. I think of the beach wedding. I'll admit, many years ago, I was asked to do a couple of weddings on the west coast of Florida for family. And inevitably, these poorly schooled and unchurched 20-something-year-olds always want you, we want that passage of St. Paul about love. We heard it today, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. From the King James, though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and I have not charity, I am as a sounding brass and tinkling symbol. Of course, everybody likes the NIV version, so we ensure that we are saying we have love. And every time I've done a wedding like that for some parishioner for their kids or grandkids and they're reading that thing, I'm standing there by a beachside wanting to throw up. Sorry, I just feel like I'm waiting for the Beatles to break out with all you need is love. St. Paul has a lot to say in chapter 13 that goes beyond the understanding of God's love for us. St. Paul is making clear that love, as God has ordained it, as God has given it to us, if we don't have it, we really have nothing. There we are, the, the sounding brass. If we have all this knowledge, all this education, even prophecy, but we don't have the love of God, we still have nothing. We could give everything up, but if we really don't have the love of God, you know, sometimes giving up stuff is easier than getting your hands dirty in the fight where you love somebody enough to make sure they have the opportunity of knowing God's word. Yet all these young married couples that would come to be married all want this chapter read because it's all about love bears all things, it hopes all things, endures all things, it never fails. And it talks about, and everybody looks at love in the most superficial way. I remember years ago learning in a catechism class at a young age that there are like seven different words for love in the Bible, and each has a distinct characteristic. In the English language, we just have this one word fits all. And sometimes we lose sight of what the word really means in the context that it is given. I love french fries, but that is different than loving your neighbor. And we sometimes in our culture have redefined or even cheapened the meaning of the word as given. Married love is a type of love. The love for your children is a very protective love. 
the love of your pet, the love of dessert is a different type of love. And the love of God trumps all. This is what St. Paul is talking about. This love we have that God has for us that then becomes a part of us that changes us, that gives us a new character, that gives us a new understanding. This is the love that St. Paul's talking about, not boyfriend, girlfriend love as we found in high school. It's far deeper. But St. Paul has a lot more to say after he has told us about this love. He then reminds us of something to put it in perspective. That's where we never read at that wedding the next part. The part that actually ties it together. What does St. Paul say? When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Couple of contexts to put that in. Young Christians are just learning. St. Paul even uses the analogy of the child when it comes to being a young Christian. We start out on the milk of God's word. We're not ready to chew the steak. We have to grow in faith as we learn more and more. The problem today, and I'm seeing it more and more than I ever have in the last 25 years, when I look at young people today, and I'm not disparaging them, I'm disparaging the institutions and some of the families and how they are raised, are being left to being perpetual children. They're never growing up. They're never taking on the responsibility. They're never going to understand what St. Paul says when I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I acted like a child. But when I got to a certain point, time to put away the childish things. For some reason, we have this arrested development syndrome that has been institutionalized. We have a lot of young, I was thinking the other day, and I'm not bragging on myself if you're anywhere near my age. I graduated high school when I was 17 years old. I was not quite 18. That summer, after I graduated, I worked literally seven days a week, plowing away as much money as I could because come the end of August, I'm hopping in my little Opal Cadet with all my worldly belongings, and I'm heading out into the world to pay for my own schooling, getting a job, and living in another state. Didn't think twice about it. Just did it. I look at some 17-year-olds today, they're afraid of graduating high school. What am I going to do now? They're ill-prepared. They become dependent. What St. Paul is reminding us, and this is what ties the love together that I'm about to get to. He's saying we have to grow up. We have to learn. Then suddenly this love of God becomes a useful tool for his kingdom 
and for us. It really does. As we grow up and we begin to see what God has done for us, then all of a sudden, the love of God in our life makes absolute sense. It's not abstract anymore. Many churches today that call themselves churches have built themselves on superficial things. They talk about love and what feels good to us, what makes us happy. They have emulated a lot of the world in order to attract a lot of people. But if the leader fails, the church goes into a tailspin, the lo that local church. I've seen it happen over and over again. Church of four, five, six thousand people. Then the pastor is caught having an affair. And 6,000 people becomes 2,000 in two weeks. Now they can't pay the mortgage. And many of the people in the church love the songs about me and how I feel and they'll come home and say, I really didn't get anything out of church today. I don't know if I want to go back next week. Funny thing is, church is not about us. It's about our worship toward God, what we give to him. This is his hour, not ours. Out of the 168 hours in the course of the week, this is the one hour. We get the other 167. Where's the hour for him? Where is our love back to him for the love he gave us in his son on the cross? It's not all about us. One of my favorite little Facebook memes is the one that shows the first narcissistic church where it's all about me. Sunday service if we feel like it. Love that sign. And that's where a lot of people are in the church today. Over the years as we have taken the sovereignty of an almighty God out of our culture. Go to any restaurant on a Sunday morning and you'll notice how many people will not be going to church today, have not been to church, and they're not Roman Catholic where they went last night. You can tell. You see, and I saw this up in Georgia one time, Early on a Sunday morning, I was having a quick bite before I had to speak. And I'm there and I see this father sitting at a table with two children, no wife there. And you knew this was his weekend. And all three have got their face in the phone. Not talking to each other at all. That's how his weekend is spent. Each in their own virtual world. And I'm looking at these kids and wondering, will they ever grow up? Will they ever get out of the virtual world that they're in today? Will the Father have that love as St. Paul is talking about, the real love of God that sometimes chastises, but always undergirds, that carries us in the difficult times of life? We have a hard road ahead as a traditional church body. But here's the good news. 
as many of the mainline churches have just consistently walked away from the faith, and other churches try to emulate more the things of the world to attract people, I'm starting to find people in their teens and 20s that are looking at the virtual world in which they're living, and they got to go, there's got to be something deeper than all this. We have that faith. We have that faith. We have the good news, and we have the message. St. Paul concludes the chapter with these two verses. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know even as I am known. St. Paul says we have a job to do here. We may not understand all the nuances. We may not have all the details quite figured out because it's hard for us to comprehend this love of God. But when that day comes and the race is done, then we'll know fully. And then he concludes, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, or love. These are the three most important things, but the greatest of the three is that charity of God, that love of God. I have a hard time comprehending this deep love that Jesus has for me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I've looked at all the gifts and opportunities he's given me in spite of myself. And I'm learning, as an old hymn said, to love him more each day. Because as I grow up in the knowledge of the faith, the easier it is to understand and receive the love he has for us. We have a lot of work ahead of us in a very changing world that is increasingly hostile to what we hold dear. We need to learn that love that's the most important thing, the true love of God, not the superficial love of the world. The love of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that I've been able to share from your word. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we begin to understand the depth of the love that came in the form of your Son, Jesus Christ that we begin to comprehend and grow in your word. Stop drinking the milk, but desire the fullness of the word, the depth of the word, that the word become a living part of us. Father, I pray for this church that it begins to fully comprehend the mission and the goals you have for it, and that people will be on board as your Holy Spirit directs. I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this congregation, and I thank you for the love that you give each and every one of us. For this I ask in Jesus' name and all the congregation said. Amen. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. to the lowest hill.
God? Do you really know his son, Jesus Christ? Has your life been transformed? Has it been redeemed? Do you know that you know that you know? Many people in the United States may may think they're Christians, but they really don't know Jesus Christ. They were maybe raised in a church. They may have been baptized. They may have been dedicated. They, but, but, The things of God are just not important. Anything can knock God off a pedestal, so to speak, and you you go chase after other things. Maybe it's your job, your career, your sporting events. In other words, when given a choice to serve your Lord or serve yourself, you choose yourself. 
We started the program today with the concept of lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust dust corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where thieves do not break in through or steal. Can you say that for yourself? We also talked about our economic woes in this country. There is going to be a price to pay. Ultimately, the day will come when you can't print any more money to get out of the mess you're in. There's going to be a time of economic upheaval. It happens. In my lifetime, I think of the number of times we've had recessions and we've had difficult financial times. And if you're really intellectually honest, each time is slightly worse than the time before, since the Great Depression. Now that we've discovered we can keep trying to buy our way out now and basically mortgage our great-grandchildren's future, the day is going to come when the whole thing is going to collapse. And it won't take much. A war, an EMP attack, hacking of computers. Look what's happened in the last, oh, several weeks. Pipelines down, meat supply interrupted. When your supply chain is just on demand of today and you haven't done what Joseph told told Pharaoh, hey, be ready for the lean years. When you're given the good years, put some aside. Make the investment. We don't even do that anymore. We expect somehow it'll all work out and government will fix it. Well, government can't fix it. They're the problem. They're creating this debt monster that's going to consume us and bury us alive. Are you ready for that time? Have you laid up treasures in heaven? Are you prepared for the things yet to come? That's why we do this radio program. Part of it is to help you prepare, to inform you, to help give you something to grasp onto that is truthful. If you believe in this ministry, would you let me know? You can contact me. Email works great, bob at truth2ponder.com. That's truth2ponder.com. Or you can mail us at 21 Berkshire, B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E, 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263 in Sky Valley. Two words, Sky Valley, Georgia, 30537. This has been Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. To find out more, visit our website, truth, the number two, and the word ponder.com. That's truth, the number two, ponder.com. Truth to Ponder, shining the light of truth in a darkening world.